Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. Well, good morning. <laughs> After I said good morning like 14 times to you, uh, that just honestly goes to show how excited I am here to be with you guys today. I don't know if this is maybe your first time, maybe your second, maybe your third, maybe it's your 30th time, and we're approaching six years, which means it could potentially be close to your 300th time here. But whatever the case may be, whatever number you're on, I am excited that you guys are here with us this morning. Um, my name is Stephen Reed. As you guys probably know, the guy who came up earlier, Bobby, he's the pastor for the church. But this week he asked me, actually it was a couple weeks ago, maybe about a month and a half ago. He said, hey, would you mind preaching for me? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. Um, he said, uh, he said, I'm going to be you know, gone during the beginning part of, of, of September. Would you be available on the 10th? And I said, yeah. What are you going to be talking about? Or what do you want me to talk about? And he said, well, I want to go through the story of Stephen in the, in the book of Acts. And I'll explain all this stuff in a second. And I said, man, like, I'd, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to speak. And I'm thinking to myself, man, Bobby, if you guys know me, you know that I speak for a long time. And the story of Stephen is one of the longest sermons that's not Jesus speaking it in the New Testament. I'm like, does Bobby know what he's doing? So it's 1045, maybe by about 1215 we'll be finished. If you're lucky. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Well, only slightly just kidding. Um, But I work with a campus ministry. It's called Campus Christian Fellowship, or CCF for short. It's over at NC State. And Movement Church, yeah, there you go. Um, Unfortunately for the loss yesterday. But I work with a CCF there. And the church here, Movement Church, has been the home church for my wife and I and our two kids for almost the full six years of the church plant of this church. We love being a part of this church. We love the fact that you guys are a community that wants to be an impact in the community, that you're believers who want to make an impact around the world. I love the things that happen within this church, and I love the friendships and the fellowship that I have in this church. One of the things that I think is really, really cool is we're going through this series called The Kingdom Unleashed, or The Church Unleashed, or just Unleashed. We're just going through this series called The Kingdom Unleashed, and the idea behind it is we want to study the book of Acts and see how the first century church thought, how they, how they interacted with God, how they interacted with each other, and probably maybe, maybe just as important as, as both of those, how they interacted with the world around them. So today, you guys are in for a treat. We're going to take a look at the story of Stephen. If you guys want to, you can turn to your Bibles. We're going to take a look at Acts chapter 6, and we're also going to take a look at Acts chapter 7. I've got it on, the, I've got it on screen for us. Um, I know that is small font, and I do that because I want to make sure you're all blind. No, I, I do that um, because it's, it's kind of a teaching style for me. I want, I want, whenever I read from Scripture, I want people to know that I didn't just pull one verse here and one verse there, but it's this full story. And there's about six slides of Stephen's sermon because, you know, he's like me, and he's long-winded. Um, but before we get into this, I want to recap just a little bit of what Frank Dodson spoke on last week. I actually wasn't here last week. I was over in Tennessee. The campus ministry I worked for for about 10 years uh, in the early 2000s was having their 50th homecoming anniversary. And so I went back to be a part of, of the worship time with them and to be a part of their ceremonies and celebrations. And on the drive back last weekend, I was driving... I was driving on 40 and got on Highway 81 and I was driving back home and I listened to the sermon from last week. And if you guys weren't here last week to hear Frank introduce this guy named Stephen to us and to talk about probably possibly one of the first big issues that the church faced, um, 
at least internally, one of the biggest issues that the church faced internally was in this beginning part of Acts chapter 6. And I'm not going to explain what happened because Frank did a great job doing that, but it sets the stage for who this Stephen character is. In that chapter, in that section that, that Frank talked about last week, the long story short is there were some widows, some were Hebraic Jewish widows, and the other ones were Hellenistic Jewish widows. And the widows weren't being taken care of. And the, the, the apostles, the disciples, they said, hey, you guys choose seven men, and here's the categories. They have to be full of wisdom, and they have to be full of the spirit. So they said, you guys choose two men, full of spirit and full of wisdom. You guys choose uh, seven men filled with those two traits. And then it says they picked Stephen and six others. But when they qualified Stephen, they said, and he's a man full of faith and spirit. And then you've also got wisdom. So we got three things about Stephen that we found out last week, which then launches us right into our story here. This is Acts chapter 6. If you guys are new to the Bible study and you have your Bible in front of you, um, it's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. If you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the Gospels, and one more, chat, or, sorry, one more book after that is Acts. If you find Romans and Corinthians, you've gone a little bit too far, just go backwards. Or you can follow along on the screen here. So I'm just going to read. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read basically... I'm, I'm going to read the sermon that he preached. I'm going to read to us, and it's, it's kind of long. I apologize in advance. It's going to be about eight to ten minutes of me just reading scripture. Um, but honestly, I think that's beautiful. I think it's good for a church to be able to listen for ten minutes to just straight scripture. Um, so this is Acts chapter 6, verse 8 and following. Now, Stephen, who, who, again, already has faith, already has a spirit, and already has wisdom, right, from Acts chapter 6 earlier. A man named Stephen. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, the Jews of uh, Cyrene, Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Asia, sorry, of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. I'll break up a little bit just to kind of say a few things here and there that are not a part of the teaching, but they might help you understand a little bit more. Um, this synagogue of the freed men, some scholars debate, was this one synagogue of freed men, and it's made up of these four people groups, or is it a synagogue of the freed men and of this, uh, the Cyrenes and Alexandria and Cilicia and uh, Asia? Like, we don't fully know if it's one synagogue of the four people or if it's five synagogues of the five people listed. But honestly, it doesn't matter who it is. All that matters is that they had opposition to Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded, get this, goodness gracious, to be a synagogue of teachers of the law and to do this. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place. So he's blasphemed Moses, blasphemed God. He's going to destroy this temple and change the customs, basically change the law of Moses that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen then they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Real quick before we go to the next chapter, the Sanhedrin is made up of 70 plus one. The one is the high priest, and then the other 70 are the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. And some of the elders and the teachers of the law 
were the ones who stirred up the people to say, hey, you know that whole thing about don't bear false witness, like the Ten Commandments thing? Yeah, let's break that and let's accuse this man. Just, that's pretty messed up. All right, Acts 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he, being Abraham, left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him, being Abraham, to this land where you, talking to the Sanhedrin, you are now living. He gave, uh, God, gave, uh, God gave Abraham no inheritance here, not even ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess this land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and, uh, and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place, being in Jerusalem and in this temple area. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later... Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Just so you can know, the 12 patriarchs are the 12 sons that came from, from Jacob. So you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are basically like the forefathers. Then you have the patriarchs, the 12 sons. And from the 12 sons, it's a little bit more complicated than this, but just simplest, the 12 sons, these patriarchs, are the, twi- the tribes of, of Israel. So these are the 12 tribes. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, and Joseph was one of the patriarchs, so 11 of the patriarchs are jealous of the younger. They're jealous of one. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Verse 11. Then a famine struck... They got the, uh, the next slide, verse 11, just so, they, just so they can follow along. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard, being the father of the 12 patriarchs, when Jacob heard that there was no grain in Egypt, sorry, sorry, that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers, being the 11 other sons, on their first visit. On their second visit, it's kind of important, on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent his father Jacob, um, and sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought uh, from the sons of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. I mean, it would make sense if like all 75 of their patriarchs and their families are there and, and they have you know, food and, and prosperity and, and wealth because Joseph has this in-command situation of, 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 of Egypt. Second in command, I should say. So they, they grow, the Hebrew people, the Hebrew nation grow. And it says that uh, at the, as the time drew near to fulfill the promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Verse 18, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. 
Basically, they were growing in number so much that the Pharaoh said, we got to control these people or else they're going to outnumber us. Let's kill their babies. And the story goes with Moses, and we'll see in a moment, that he was born, and after a couple of months of being with his mom, she put, her, she put Moses in a, in a basket and sent him down the Nile. And then eventually, the Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. At that time, Moses was born, and he was, no ordinary, he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. And when he was placed outside, being the story of the wicker basket, um, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, 40 years, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. For 40 years, he's in the palace. He's with, the, he's with Pharaoh. He's, he's in the high palace. And then he decides to leave his palace and come down to the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting he tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? And our next slide, verse 27. But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. For 40 years, had pa- after 40 years passed by, so now he's 80, after 40 years had passed by, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over to get a closer look. He, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled with fear, and he did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for this place where you are standing is holy ground. Just a little side note, this is not the temple. Just a place where God is, is holy ground. It'll come into effect in a little bit. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and I've come down to set them free. Now come and I will send you back to Egypt. So he comes down from Pharaoh's palace to the people. They reject him, he leaves. Joseph was one of the 12 patriarchs, they reject him. And basically, they, they, they fake his death. They say to the father, Joseph is dead. He leaves. It's not until they come and see Joseph the second time, and it's not until Moses goes back the second time as a deliverer that they actually get what's going on. So verse 36. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea for 40 years in the wilderness. So now another set of 40 years. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Moses is foreshadowing Jesus. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, I'm going to read it again. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from our own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received the living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time when they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled. Golly, reveled. They reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. 
This agrees with what was written with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the stars of, the, of your God, Rephan, and the idols that you made to worship, and idols that you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. The sermon still keeps going. And I'm getting a lot of, feed, a lot of like feedback. Do I need to step back, or is it just me? Okay, so air conditioning, possibly. Okay, all right. So Acts uh, 7.44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern that he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua, basically the Ark of the Covenant is what we're talking about here with the Ten Commandments inside of it. Our, uh, under it, Joshua brought, in, brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land, being the land of Jerusalem. It remained there until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. At this point, there was no temple. At this point, it was just the Ark of the Covenant. And David said, I want to build a temple for God. And we will see this ex- ex- set out here in a second, but basically what, what God is going to say to them is, uh, I created everything. Everything that you see, everything, I created it. So if this is the earth, or if this is the earth, like if this is the earth, and you want to create with what you can see, a little itty bitty house for me to dwell in. Like I made everything that your eyes can see, and you're going to build a house that cannot block everything that you see. How am I supposed to live in that, right? Okay, so... David, verse 46, who enjoyed God's favor and, and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all these things? And this is what gets Stephen killed. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet or you, that your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin, being the 70 plus one, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is a euphemism for passed away or died, because passed away is also a euphemism. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, 
Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Just his sermon alone, I, I could probably just wrap it up right now and be done. His, that is a powerful message. Um, before I continue, I want to go and take a moment and just pray. Father, I thank you. Um, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every time we get a chance to dig into it and read it, that it, it, it applies still today. Um, give us the wisdom and the faith to hear what is happening with the story of Stephen and to have the courage to live out what we see in his life. Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross in spirit. Thank you for living in our hearts when we confess you as our Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm gonna transition for a moment and tell you guys a story about World War II. And I'm not telling the story because of any kind of, you know, nationalism or something like that. Um, I wanna tell the story because it's, it, it proves a point with what we're gonna talk about at the end. So in, during World War II, there was a, a lieutenant in the Japanese military. His name was Sadaki Kenoshi. And if you guys are historians and I mispronounced his name, I apologize. I've only ever read it. I've never heard it said. But Sadaki Kenoshi is this man's name. And he was so, he, he, he despised the Western world and the Western allies so much that he prided himself in saying that he was the, the most vigilant prosecutor and vigilant killer of the American West. And so that earned him a position at an internment camp where he was like the commander of an internment camp there in the Philippines. Now, again, I'm not, any internment camp is bad, whether it's an American internment camp or, or a Japanese internment camp or a Nazi internment camp, like they're, they're bad. I'm not, I'm not picking on them because of any other reason except for a point that we're gonna make at the end. So this man, Kenoshi, he has an internment camp and he was known for being so messed up he would take two prisoners. I'll give you, I'll give you guys three, uh, three quick stories from him. He would take two prisoners. He would put them in like this death chamber, this death room, and he would tell them, okay, only one of you guys can speak. The other one has to maintain being silent. And then the one who could talk, he would ask him the question, today, who dies, you or him? And the one who could speak, he couldn't give a defense he couldn't even say, you. Like he, he, all he could respond back with was me or him. That was it. And think about it. If you are the one who can't speak and the one who does speak says me, then you have to live in this sense of fate is against me. If, if, if the coin had flipped the other direction or the 50-50 chance and, and I had been called on, I could have been the one to sacrifice myself for my friend, for my POW friend. But instead, fate is against me and now you have this guilt and shame that you just randomly got to live. Fate is against you because it, it takes out people that you love. Or what if you're the one who you get to speak and you think to yourself, man, I've got, I've got a wife, I've got a family, I, I, I want to live, I, I don't want to die. So... You then say him. Now you have to live with the guilt and shame of knowing that you caused potentially someone to be a widow and for some kids to be fatherless. And you have to live with that shame and you have to walk around the concentration camp and the internment camp with this guilt. And like he was, Kenoshi was horrible with the mental games, with the mind games. And not only that, but he, he, was, he was known for starving as most internment camps do, starving their people. There was one particular story that he locked all of the men up in these barricades, in their barracks, and locked them in there, and then brought in a dump truck full of food and dumped it on the asphalt. And for days, just let all of this vegetables and fruit and some meat just bake on the asphalt in the Philippines in the summertime. 
The, the guys could smell it. They could see it. They could watch the birds come down and eat it. They could watch the foxes and the raccoons and the squirrels and all those other little animals come through, the, right, the, the, the rats and the mice. Like, they could just see everything else eating it, but they couldn't. And after about a week or so, you know, she opened up the doors and said, if you can stomach it, have your lunch. And so those who ate it ended up getting sick and dying because of all the maggots and filth and fermentation and, and, and feces and urine that was in this from the animals and the birds. And it was just not a good camp. They had a, they had a hospital ward called Zero Ward because many would go into it, but only zero came out alive. Zero Ward. It was not a good place. I've got more I can tell about this, but I won't. I'll just keep going with what happens. In February of 1945, the 11th Airborne Brigade, the 11th Airborne Troops of North Carolina go in with allies in the surrounding cities there in the Philippine area, and they go in and they rescue the POWs and they, they capture a lot of the Japanese military who were having these, war, or these uh, crimes against humanity. Kenoshi escaped that and about a week or so later went back to the camp and found that it was completely empty. You know, it had been rescued, at least from our perspective, rescued. And he goes around to the surrounding cities and he kills 1,500 men and women in the surrounding communities because they allied with the Western world. And eventually Kenoshi was captured and he was tried for his war crimes and his crimes against humanity and he was hung. And I'm going to put his story on pause. We're going to take a look real quick at Stephen because we'll come back to what happens with Kenoshi in a moment. Um, one of the things that I think is hap that happens here in the book of, of, of Acts with the story of Stephen, I think we have these six takeaways. And don't worry, this isn't going to be like, you know, 60 more minutes. Um, we have these six takeaways. And the first one is this. When you are filled with something, that is the filter for how you act and how you react. I remember when I was growing up, I would read things in the scriptures and it would say they were filled with the spirit, they were filled with boldness, or they were filled with compassion, they were filled with the, like, what, like wisdom. And I think, man, what would that look like? But the truth is, I know exactly what it looks like to be filled with something. So a lot of times it's not the right thing. I know exactly what it's like to be filled with anger or to be filled with, I mean, ever heard the expression, oh, that person's full of crap. Like it just means, and I apologize if I shouldn't have said that, but it just means that their life is, their filter is, I'm going to lie, I'm going to manipulate, I'm going to, like, I'm just going to deceive people. What you are filled with is the filter in how you act and how you react. Full of love, full of anger, full of greed, full of pride, or maybe, maybe you're full of compassion, maybe you're full of life. I mean, you guys have heard the expression, oh, that person's just full of life. We know exactly what it means. We, we means it, it means that they live life to the fullest. It means that they grab life and they run with it. Like the expression filled with something shouldn't be that complicated. But somehow when it gets to, and he was filled with the spirit, we think, man, what would that be like? And when it says, and he was filled with, with wisdom, it's like, oh man, I, I, what would that be like? It'd be exactly like the expression filled with love or filled with life or filled with anger. What, like, it's the filter. What it means is he lived as if the Holy Spirit were living in his shoes. He lived every moment as if this is what happens when you have faith. He lived like, if I want to be wise, I'm going to act with wisdom in this moment. That's what it means to be filled with something. It's, it's a filter on how you act, which is our second point brings up, or brings up our second point. It says, when you are filled with the Spirit, people will come against you. It's not a matter of if, it's, it's a matter of when. They're going to come against you. You, you may have friends who are like, uh, that Christian thing is like bonkers. You may have professors, even, even more so, who are like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's a crutch for humanity. You may have family or maybe even parents or siblings or, or, or even children who look at you and say, your faith is, is weird. Like that, it's dumb. It's stupid. I, I'm, I'm against it. That you will have people who come against you, whether it's coworkers or your boss. Um, and 
And what do you do when they come against you? What do you do? What would do how do you handle it? And this brings us to our third section, the, thing, uh, the third takeaway, is that Stephen chose to not vindicate himself, but instead to point people to Jesus. This blows my mind. Did you notice in his entire defense, in his entire, like the high priest, the 70 plus one, the one, the high priest says, are these charges true? There are four charges, blaspheming Moses, blaspheming God, blaspheming the temple, and blaspheming the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. There are four charges against him. And he gets up and he never once says, I am innocent. He never once says, no, you misunderstood what I was saying. I was saying that I believe these things, but it's the fulfillment of Jesus. He never once gives any kind of vindication for himself. The crazy part about this is his defense is still a defense. The difference is he is not the center of it. That is exactly the opposite of how I I would have done it. And the reason why I know it's the opposite is because every time... I get accused of something. My go-to reaction is to defend myself. And I'm not saying be a carpet, and I'm not saying you can't defend yourself, but what I am saying is in this moment, this man, Stephen, was filled with wisdom because he knows this is a lose-lose for me. I am going to die. This is a Sanhedrin, the same people that about six months ago killed Jesus for the exact same thing. Blasphemy against God, blaspheming the temple, blaspheming the law of Moses, and blaspheming Moses. Like Jesus was accused by these same people for the exact same thing, and Jesus, being the Messiah himself, was killed by these people. This is a lose-lose for Stephen. I believe that in this moment, he was so full of wisdom and so full of spirit that he knew there's no walking out of this one alive. So I can either die by proving how right I am and how wrong they are, and saying the exact same thing, but having the eye center of it, I can either die vindicating myself, or I can die without any focus on myself and just tell them how they don't understand Jesus and how they've missed the, the gospel. And I can tell them how to point to Jesus. Like I can, either, I can either die selfishly or I can die for the glory of God. Which one is it going to be? And in that moment, he chose, I'm going to die for the glory of God. And there are going to be times, again, I'm not saying be a carpet. What I am saying is that he knew when it was important to just point people to Jesus. He knew when it was important to say, I could fight this and I could prove that I'm right. But in this moment, I'm just, I'm just going to simply point someone to Jesus. And by pointing and by saying these are the things that point to Jesus, he, he is vindicating himself. He just never had to say it. Does that, does that make sense? Like in that moment, he chose, it's not about me. It's not about clearing my name. It's simply about helping this person understand who Jesus is more fully. I think that's powerful. I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the most strongest elements of this, of this story. The, the fourth point that I've got for us, or the fourth takeaway, is that Stephen spoke from a foundation of Scripture. Every single response that he gave was a summary or an exact quote of either the Septuagint or of the Hebrew Old Testament. It blows my mind that the, the church, Christianity, if you will, was, was still newborn. It was still newborn at this time, maybe, maybe six months, maybe eight months old. So he would have been, for lack of better phrasing, a new Christian, 
But that doesn't mean that he was new to faith. It doesn't mean that he was new to God. It doesn't mean that he was new to understanding the heart of God. He had grown up with the heart of God pressed on him as a Jewish man. He was a Hellenistic Jewish man. By the time that the, the Jewish boys are five years old, they are, starting to, they are starting to memorize the written Torah. By the time that they are 10, they have memorized the oral traditions and the oral Torah. By the time that they're 13, they go through the bar mitzvah. By the time that they're 15, they basically learn the Mishnah or they learn the, the, the oral traditions of the rabbis on the understandings of the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketavim, but we call it the Old Testament. So he, by the time that he was 13 and 15, he would have had everything that he quoted basically memorized already. So yes, he's, he's, Christianity is new, but he is not new to understanding that if you want to have a solid faith in God and what he's doing, you need to have a solid foundation in scripture. You need to have a solid foundation. Biblical devotion is key if you want to stand like Stephen. Now, I'm not saying like, oh, if you don't read your Bible five times a week or, or for 15 minutes a day, you're, you're, you're sinning. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if you want to have a life where you can be full of faith and full of the spirit and full of wisdom and full of power and God's grace, if you want to have that kind of life where, where if you just want to have that kind of life, it begins by having a foundation on scripture. Um, and when you have this foundation of scripture, this leads us to the, the fifth point I want to point out here is that even in spite of death, he was still filled with mercy and love. He said the exact same thing to his killers that Jesus said to his killers. There on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And Stephen basically says, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this, don't hold this murder against them. Which is incredible to say. I can see how Jesus can say it because I understand the, the I, I don't, I don't, I don't heartfully understand, I just mentally understand that God is full of love and he loves his people. So I can, I can imagine Christ being divine having that. I cannot imagine a mere human having that same emotion. That blows my mind. I've experienced things in my life and frustrations in my life where I did not want the person to be forgiven. I didn't want them to be saved. I would have enjoyed it if they went to hell. And I wrestled with what it means to be filled with murderous rage for years. And that's not even the point of today. So if you ever want to talk about that, I will gladly talk about it. But that's not the point. The point of what I'm trying to say is I know what it's like to hate somebody to the point at which you want them to die. And he says, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. Because when you stand like Stephen and you stand in a life that says, I'm going to be someone that acts in faith every moment. I'm going to be someone who acts like the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me like the Holy Spirit does. And I'm going to act like somebody who has wisdom. And when you do these things, you become a man of faith and a woman of faith and you become a child of God that has wisdom and it begins with having a foundation of scripture and, it, and it, it, it can even end with you just having a spirit of love and mercy for somebody else. Which brings me to the last, uh, the last point I want to make here. This story ends somewhat sadly. It ends very sadly. It ends with Stephen dying. But even in spite of the tragedy, God in his sovereignty, he can take tragedy and turn it into some good. In this story, we see that Stephen, in a lose-lose situation, he goes through and he never once vindicates himself with the four things they accused him of. Instead, he just simply uses all four of those things and says, you know what? 
The, the message of the cross has been with us all along. The message of the cross has been with us from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to, to, to Joseph, who, was, who, who should have been the leader of his, of his patriarchs, but they rejected him. It, it, it resembles in Moses, he should have been the deliverer for the, for the uh, Israelite people in Egypt, and they rejected him until he came back. And, and the law of Moses is good. I'm not, I'm not slamming the law of Moses, as Stephen was saying. I'm, I'm not slamming it. In fact, I'm showing you that Christ is the fulfillment of this law. Like you, the law points out how broken we are, and I'm not against God. I'm not against the dwelling place. I'm not against Jerusalem. I'm just saying God is big, and he's sovereign, and you can't build a house that's going to hold him. And he goes through this sermon, and he basically just says to them some great things to help them see Jesus, and it ends with him being killed. But God in his wisdom, see in the beginning of Acts chapter 1, it says he, Jesus was on earth with the disciples before he was taken up into heaven. And he's talking with his disciples and he says, you guys are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they're at right now in this story of Stephen. You're going to be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, which is the greater region around. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria, which is, you know, those bad people. Um, the, the Jewish nation didn't like the, Samaria, the Samaritans. And then you're going to be my, my, my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so far up till now, the church, we don't know exactly how big they were. Some scholars uh, estimate between ten to 20,000 Christians right now in Jerusalem. And they're still in Jerusalem. And God has already spoken through Jesus. And Jesus said, you are going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so far, they were all in Jerusalem. And God... I don't want to say caused this moment, but I think God allowed this moment to happen for Stephen because persecution breaks out. Persecution breaks out. Saul goes around killing everybody. And what happens, I'm going to read this again in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved their killing him. And on that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. Godly men surrounded Stephen and buried him and mourned for him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church, going house to house, and dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So the story ends with Stephen being killed. The Saul, the Pharisee, going around persecuting the church. It ends, it, it ends like no good movie should end. Like the credits don't roll now. You, you, don't, you don't walk away like, oh, good. Jesus did something good in this, in this moment. He did, but we can't see it. Like if, the, if the credits rolled now, you'd be like, man, that was a messed up movie. I want my money back. But the truth is, it's exactly what God, I don't want to say wanted to happen, but God used this moment to say, okay, I want you to be my witnesses, and right now you're only in Jerusalem, so I'm going to spread you out. And God can take any tragedy, and he can bring about some amount of good. Um, the story that I mentioned with uh, Kenoshi, he, um, he, was, he was tried and he was captured. He was captured and tried and then he was hung for his war crimes against humanity. And as he was getting ready to be killed, the typical question of like, hey, do you have any last words? And he said to them, I know that what I did was wrong and I have asked for forgiveness for what I've done and I know that I deserve this punishment and I'm okay with it because I'm a Christian. And those who were getting ready to kill him or, or hang him through the, through, the, through the court system. They were like, you became a Christian. When did this happen? And he said, well, after I went back 
to the camp and there was nobody there and it was empty. And I was so filled with anger and rage that I went out and I destroyed 1,500 men and women in the cities. I started realizing that this pursuit that I was going for was, was empty. And I looked back over the past few months and years of working at this internment camp and I realized that every single one of the ones who had hope in my internment camps, they were Christians. It's kind of like the story of the Grinch. The Grinch took everything from the Who people. He took their trees, he took their Christmas lights, he took their cookies, he took their milk, he took their stockings, he took everything from them, thinking that if I take everything from you, you will have nothing left but to be broken. And yet, when he goes up on the mountain, he hears them singing Christmas carols. And he's like, how is this possible? And Kenosha's thinking the same thing. I took everything from you. I messed with your minds. I messed with your bodies. I mutilated you. I tortured you. I killed your friends. I took everything from you. How are you still having hope? How are they still standing like Stephen in a moment where it was just chaos and pain for months and, and, and years on end? And he said, I realized that it was Christ who gave them hope. And so I decided that I was going to give my life to the Lord. I don't know if every single one of your painful stories is going to end like that. I don't know if every single one of your painful stories is going to end like the, the, the Jewish dysparia where they go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. I don't know if it's all going to end with even the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, who was known for persecuting the nation of Israel. I don't know if it's all going to end in a nice bow that says, man, the, the horrible things that I experienced were so much are so much better now. I, I, I doubt, in fact, I think many of us are going to have tragedies that are just really, really painful tragedies, but still there's some amount of good that can come from it. And when you want, if you want to stand like Stephen, if you want to be someone who is known as being a man or woman of faith, man or woman of the Holy Spirit, man and woman of wisdom, man and woman of grace, man and woman of power, if you want to stand like Stephen, it, it looks like this, at least, at least in his life story, it looks like this. It looks like mercy, it looks like compassion, it looks like being filled with scripture, it looks like being less of yourself and trying to vindicate yourself and instead pointing people to Jesus. It looks a lot like knowing that the world's gonna come against you. But what matters is what are you filled with? How is that gonna be a filter for how you react and how you act in this world? I pray this morning that you have a relationship with the Father. I pray this morning that you've accepted Christ as your Savior. And I pray this morning you had the Spirit living inside of you and dwelling inside of you. And if you don't, then, then come talk to us. Bobby will be down here. I'll be down here, or at least in this area. I'll be down here. If you guys need to talk to somebody, I, I'm, I'm here. Bobby's here. The church, we're here for you. Don't let this morning come and go where you hear a really cool story about this guy named Stephen and just think, yeah, that could never be me. Hopefully, hopefully his ending isn't yours as far as death goes that way. But you can have the kind of faith that he had. You can have the kind of hope that he had. You can have the kind of impact in the world around you that he had. In a moment, we're going to sing a song, and I invite you guys to stand and worship with us. Um, I invite you, if you need some prayer, come down and get prayer. I invite you, if you want to talk about salvation, talk. I'll go ahead and close this in prayer, and then we'll have a song. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for... I thank you... For, I, I don't know why my kids are popping in my head right now. Father, I thank you for my kids. 
I thank you for the life that they are to me and the joy they are to me and my wife. God, I thank you for, um, I, I can't imagine being in one of those internment camps and having to choose between me and somebody else. God, I can't imagine being Stephen, knowing that it is a lose-lose situation. I'm dead no matter what I do in this moment. I've never even come close to experience that kind of near-death experience for faith. Um, and God, I pray that we never experience that. But if we do, Father, I pray that we would honor you. I pray that we would glorify you. I pray that we would stand in that moment. We would stand with Stephen and we would stand with boldness. And we would stand with faith. I pray in that moment that your spirit would just fill us and help us step out and be bold. Father, if there's anything I said this morning that wasn't right, I pray that you just kind of block it out. If there's anything I said that was true, I pray that you echo it in their ears for the days to come. Christ, thank you for dying on the cross for me, for my family, and for the family in this room, and for the world. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement NC.